church, and they're going to pray for us as we begin our time together. Luke chapter 17. Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God Except this foreigner. And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this morning we come before your word with great anticipation because we have seen that you are the God who speaks. And so Lord, as your people gather together around the foot of your cross, As we celebrate together the Lord Jesus, we ask and pray, come Holy Spirit, empower the preaching of your word this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, as much as we don't like to admit it, whinging is something of our national pastime. It's the easiest way to make small talk. It feels like there's so many things to complain about. I mean, let's get started here. Workmates, COVID measures. Uh, your spouse, politics, office politics, traffic, kids, exams. Here's a recent one, fuel and grocery prices, and of course, property prices. Uh, in an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, Dom Knight writes the following in this article entitled, Sydney, Stop Whinging, Our City's Not That Bad. He says the following, he says, Sydney Siders, It might be time we stopped complaining about our city. Sure, our property prices make extortionists feel embarrassed and our nightlife still less lively than the Tasmanian tiger. But the economics uh, economists' global livability ranking just reminded us of how good we've got it. Sydney jumped to fifth with only Vienna, Osaka, Calgary and Melbourne ahead of us. Melbourne dropped to second, meaning that condolences are due our Victorian cousins who just lost their favourite bragging topic. Baristas across the city have been sobbing into their beards and using their tears for cold drip filter. I love it. It's so funny. But it's true, isn't it? We live in an amazingly beautiful and divinely blessed country. Yet listening to the way we often talk, you wouldn't know it, would you? This kind of critical lens isn't just something that's out there. 
It's often how we behave as followers of Jesus as well. Our culture of entitlement and complaining is something that can deeply affect each one of us as well. And none of us are immune from it. Truth be told, an honest assessment will show that we are often hiding the many, many mercies we receive from God under a basket and setting our needs and trials on a hill for all to see. Quick to complain about a difficult trial. Slow to give thanks about abundant daily providence. Here's a difficult question that I want us to consider this morning as a church. Would those who know you best describe you as a grateful person? Those that know you best, not not those that don't know you well. Those that know you best, those that are closest to you. Are you quick to give praise and thanks to God in every season? Are you quick to give thanks and praise to God for difficulties as well as blessings? Or are blessings simply moments when the complaining quietens down? Is there a sense of thankfulness and gratitude towards God that marks your life? Or is there simply a silence? And perhaps under this still surface, a deeper current flows. A current marked by disappointment. You know, whinging is such a part of our culture that its presence is almost invisible to us. We'll say things like, you know, I'm just a realist. Or, I'm just a details-oriented person. These are some of the details I don't quite like. I'm just venting. I'm just, I'm just kind of letting off some steam. You know how it is. These are some of my frustrations. That's all. And sometimes we spiritualize it. These are, these are just simply some prayer points I'm praying through. But here's the problem. Gratitude and grumbling are not minor details of the Christian life. They are not minor details when it comes to following Jesus. In fact, there is perhaps no better indicator of your spiritual health as a follower of Jesus than the presence or absence of gratitude. And gratitude has the ability to reveal truths about the way you view yourself and the way you view God. It reveals what you think about yourself, your identity, and what you think about God and the way he has treated you. And our passage today is powerful and timely, I believe, because Jesus is going to reveal something of our natural disposition as people, and that is to be thankless. And yet at the same time, the surprising way in which one man reacts to the mercy he receives. He's taking notes this morning. I'm entitled this message, The Grateful Few. And I've got three points this morning. Uh, Point number one, a miraculous salvation. We're going to spend most of the time on point number one. Point number two, I've entitled Unlocking Ingratitude. And I'm going to show you the key to understanding this whole parable, uh, this whole story, sorry. And point number three, I've entitled Walking with the Merciful Christ as we look at growing in gratitude. Three points, one hope for us this morning. One thing that I believe the Lord Jesus wants us to see in this text, and that is this, that a life of gratitude is the only response 
the only right response to encountering the mercy of Christ. The only right way to respond to encountering Christ's mercy is to live a life of gratitude. So let's jump right into our passage with point number one, a miraculous salvation. You know, one of the things I really enjoy uh, in life is sharing Jesus with friends and neighbors who don't know him. And one of the most common objections I've heard from people uh, to following Jesus is simply this. If God is real and Jesus really is Lord, I'd need to see a miracle to believe. I wonder if you've heard that before. I wonder if that's you this morning as maybe you listen in online or, or you're here present. You're new to Jesus and you tell yourself, I would need a miracle to really believe. Well, the passage this morning that we're about to read again and go through teaches us a vital lesson. And that is this, that a miracle is highly unlikely to be enough for a person to put their trust in Jesus. In our passage today, 90% of those who had a miraculous encounter with Jesus walked away in unbelief. And we're going to start by unpacking this parable to understand why that is. Uh, Just by way of context, if you're new and joining us for the first time, Luke, the great physician and friend of the Apostle Paul, is documenting the life of Jesus for us. He's on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And last week we saw Jesus teach on the path of following Jesus, the dangers of sin, the importance of faithfully, lovingly helping people and gently being open and honest in our conversations with them. Luke now turns to describe this miraculous encounter between Jesus and some lepers. So why don't we read again from verse 11. It says the following. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifting up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And Luke wants to remind you that this is where Jesus has his gaze fixed as this counter unfolds. Passing from his home district of Galilee in the north down through Samaria towards Jerusalem in the south, we're not told exactly where Jesus is. And this group of 10 men with leprosy present themselves to Jesus who likely lived separately near the village And they approach him at a distance and they call out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You see, leprosy in the Bible actually included a variety of diseases. And it's not simply the disease that we know as leprosy, which is Hansen's disease. And that's what we normally think of when we hear of leprosy. By law in the Bible, people with leprosy had to keep themselves at a a, a distance of 50 paces, a 50 pace buffer from people or places as not to contaminate them. Uh, We read about this in Leviticus. Uh, In Leviticus, uh, Moses writes the following. He says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. I want to just pause here for a moment. I just want us to kind of put ourselves in these lepers' condition. I just want you to imagine with me 
what it must have been like to have contracted one of these conditions. Just imagine with me, you first notice an itchy bump on your hand and you think it's probably, you know, just a mozzie bite, an insect bite. And starts to grow and progress, traveling up your arm. And so you start to hide it in the clothing you wear because you're afraid. And eventually you're at the market and someone notices a mark on your face. So you're taken to the priest. He declares you have leprosy and you're unclean. And you're taken immediately outside of the town to dwell with other lepers. No kiss goodbye to your spouse. No goodbye to your friends or even your children or your work colleagues. No social support system to feed or house you or treat you. No one will even take you in as a slave. Nothing you touch can ever be used. And no one but another leper can ever approach you. You are forced to simply beg from 50 paces just to survive. You cannot work. You cannot see your children or friends. And this well might be your lot until you die. These men would have been utterly desperate. And so they stand at a distance as was required. And they call out. Jesus. Master. Now outside of our passage. Luke only records this word on the lips of disciples. Clearly they've heard something of Jesus' miracles. And so they come with just this kernel of hope. Have mercy on us. It's really interesting what they ask here. It's more like something you would pray to God. Have mercy on me. Notice they don't say heal us. It might well be that they've long given up on that. They're simply saying, Jesus, please look upon us in our pitiful situation. Have mercy. And Jesus hears them calling out from the distance. And he turns from the direction he's looking to look at them. And we read on in verse 14, it says this. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. What Jesus says here in reply is also really interesting. He doesn't acknowledge their situation. He doesn't walk over and touch them. He doesn't tell them that he will answer them. He simply says, go and show yourself to the priests, which is what a person was required to do if they've already been healed. Effectively, he says, go and show yourself to the priests to prove you've been healed. None of them object and say, well, we'll look like idiots if we do that, Jesus. Or they'll chastise us and beat us and chase us out of town. They actually show a a real kernel of faith here as they simply go. And Luke documents that it was as they obeyed the command of Christ in faith that they were healed. I just love this beautiful picture that Luke is showing us. There's something incredibly powerful about the word of our Lord Jesus. He simply speaks and in a moment lives are changed. It's the word of the maker of the universe. Go and show them you've been healed is all he says. And as they go, they are healed. I mean, we could probably pause here and give a whole sermon on this point, on the blessings to be found in faith-filled obedience to the Lord Jesus. But we need to stay focused. We need to move on. So read with me verses 15 and 16 of our passage. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. 
this one man from among the ten notices that a healing has happened. And Luke says he turned back praising God with a loud voice. You know, imagine the ecstasy these men felt to have been healed. Imagine knowing you could hug your children, you could return to work your job, you could kiss your wife or your husband, you could celebrate with your friends. And so it says in a classic understatement, with a loud voice, he would have been losing his mind. And he comes and he falls at his feet in worship of Jesus, giving thanks to him. But what has happened to this man is more than simply that he's acting thoughtfully. This combination of the words turn back and praising God is only ever used in two other occasions by Luke in his gospel and Acts. And in both times, it refers to people who've been converted to Christ. They've become disciples. In chapter 2, it's the shepherds. And in chapter 8, it's the demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes who was cleansed by Jesus. This man who was plagued with leprosy has come to faith in Jesus. And the picture is beautiful. He is no longer standing at a distance pleading. He's been cleansed. And now he's on his face before Jesus at his feet, worshiping him, no longer far away, but upright, close and personal, reconciled to his maker. More, Luke wants you to see that there was something incredibly unlikely about this man being the one to have been converted to faith. He says at the end of verse 16, deliberately, by way of emphasis, now he was a Samaritan. See, Samaritans and Jews hated one another. They were considered apostates by the Jews. They had their own mixed religion. This man would have been on his way to the temple of the Samaritans and the priests of the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, not Jerusalem. They had intermarried with the surrounding nations. They were hated and they were excluded. And Samaritans, in response, equally resented and excluded Jewish people. Would a Samaritan naturally want to be close to a Jewish rabbi? Well, what's Luke's point here? The least likely from among these men with leprosy has come to faith. And so we read on the following, verse 17. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Jesus says, where's everyone else? Why is it only this foreigner who's come back? Now, what Jesus says next is critical for understanding what has happened through this miracle. He says the following in verse 19. And he said to them, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Perhaps better, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. To be saved or to be delivered in one sense is a reference to the reality that this man had been delivered from a terrible plight he faced with his diseased body. But there's a deeper sense Luke wants you to see. He's come to faith in Christ and is now a follower of Christ. For the nine other men, they had a miraculous encounter with Christ and yet there's no evidence anything ever came of it. No evidence of gratitude towards Jesus at all. Their kernel of faith was snuffed out shortly after they were healed. But in this foreigner, the miracle had its intended effect. And he was reunited with his maker. And that really is our first point. A miraculous salvation. Jesus miraculously heals ten men from leprosy. 
And yet only one of them comes to genuine faith. And so now we move on to point number two, unlocking in gratitude. You know, part of the beauty of this word of God is that nothing is ever accidental. Everything is deliberately placed by the sovereign hand of God through multiple human authors. And the same is true of our passage. Luke has deliberately placed our passage here to help us to see one of the great causes of ingratitude. See, the truth is Luke has placed our passage, this miraculous healing, right here to explain something Jesus has just taught about the nature of our relationship with God. I want you to dive back and read with me uh, verses 7 through to 10, the verses that immediately precede our passage. Jesus tells a parable. He says the following. Will any one of you who has a servant, perhaps better when you read servant, you should insert slave. Jesus says, will any one of you who has a slave plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the slave because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded to do, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done what was our duty. Now, Jesus using the relationship between a slave and his or her master to describe something of the relationship between God and his people. Now, I need to make a few caveats before we continue on. The reason why most translations don't use the word slave is because in our culture, the word slave carries so much baggage. We instinctively think of the abhorrent New World slave trade in the 18th and 19th centuries, and that's not what slavery in the Old Testament was about. Jewish slavery was more akin to a social security system. It was highly regulated. uh, It was for a limited time. It was voluntarily entered into, and it was a way of avoiding destitution. It's also important to say and to note that this is not all there is to be said about our relationship with God. We're called elsewhere friends of God, children of God, co-heirs with Christ. You would have a very wrong impression if you thought that this is all that there is to be said. But there is an important point that Jesus is trying to make here. There's an important question in this parable that Jesus is trying to address. And the question is this, what does God owe you? What does God owe us? And Jesus wants you to see that this is just like asking, what does a master owe his slaves? And the answer is nothing. A master owes his slave nothing. The slave is his property. The slave has no rights. The slave does not have any rights, only responsibilities. Jesus' point in this parable is simple. God owes you nothing. See, many people in our neighborhood believe in the gospel of the self-made man. But the Bible tells a different story. The Bible tells the story that we did not make ourselves, but God made us to know him and love him. Picture in the Bible is that God is the potter and we are the clay. He is the artist. We are the painting. He is the builder. We are the shed. A 
clay pot does not have any rights before its maker. It does not own itself. Its existence is contingent on the one who made it. If a potter chooses to destroy a pot he has made, who could charge him with any wrong? The clay is his. He can salvage it or he can destroy it. And the truth of scriptures is that we are not just clay, we are rebellious clay. We are dried out and hardened clay. We are clay resistant to being shaped by our maker, shaking our fists at him. And in many ways, the physical condition of these lepers is a picture of our natural spiritual condition. We were made to know and love our maker, and yet we're cut off from him and rotten at the core. See, the scandal of the Bible is that the maker became clay to rescue us. Though we rightly deserve to be destroyed by the potter, God the Son, because of his amazing mercy and kindness, became one of us to rescue us. He lived the life we failed to live. He lived a life of perfect harmony with God the Father, loving him and others like these men with leprosy. And he headed for Jerusalem to take upon himself our betrayal of God upon the cross. Not because in any way he had to, but simply because he desired to. And now that he's conquered death and the grave, he lives to save all that come to him. We might be sitting there and say, okay, Brandon, what on earth does any of this have to do with gratitude? Everything. Absolutely everything. Because here's the important point. As long as a person feels a sense of entitlement before God, that he owes them, they will never be truly grateful. You know, we might be quietly or even publicly pleading with God to help us. But that doesn't mean we'll be thankful when he answers. We might actually have a deep sense of conviction that we are entitled to what we are asking for. And so when God answers, it will be silence. It will silence our complaint, but it won't lead to gratitude. We might even, in fact, quietly resent that it took God so long to give us what we've been asking for. And this appears to be what the example of the nine lepers illustrates. There is no turning to Jesus in thanks after they're healed. And perhaps, we're not told, but perhaps it is because they believed God had given them what they deserved all along, at last. You see, part of our challenge on the North Shore is that often we believe ourselves to be such good people that we think God owes us many things. God owes us a happy marriage. God owes us good health. God owes us a career. God owes us property and children, overseas holidays, nice cars and clothing, and an excellent retirement. And the truth is, it's impossible to be a truly grateful person when you live with a sense of entitlement towards God. But when you see that God owes you nothing... That he is the master, he is the potter, he is the artist. 
And when you see that you've betrayed your master and deserve his punishment, but that this master is so full of grace, he would suffer for you. Overwhelming gratitude is the only right response. I love what J.C. Ryle says of our passage. He says this. It's one of my favorite sentences. He says, if saints could only see their souls as the ten afflicted lepers saw their bodies, then they would pray far better than they do. Isn't that true? If only we could see our inward condition like these men saw their bodies, wouldn't we look different? If only we could see the true wretchedness of our condition apart from Christ, we would be filled with gratitude overflowing. Can I ask you a difficult question? Do you feel like God is holding out on you? That he's withholding things you deserve? Until we rightly see ourselves before him, that he owes us nothing but wrath. That we have leprosy of the soul and yet he suffered to save us. We won't be a grateful people. I wonder if this is what made all the difference in the life of this Samaritan. Rather than being a spiritual insider who felt entitled, he was an outsider who perhaps felt he deserved nothing. And when the grace of our Lord Jesus rained down on his life, he was overwhelmed with thanks. Well, that is point number two, unlocking ingratitude. Nothing hinders gratitude like the presence of entitlement. But not just point number two, unlocking ingratitude. But point number three, walking with the merciful Christ. Alan, if you could just get a fallback speaker at the front, it's buzzing. Thanks, Lyd. Amazing. That's excellent. Well, finally, I want us to end our time with some reflections on how we can grow on the path of gratitude. You know, we're immersed in a culture of entitlement and self-obsession. And so this is not easy. I want you just to sit there and think for me with a moment. Do you remember a time when you were filled with gratitude? You know, maybe you were new in your faith and you were filled with that kind of deep sense of thankfulness to God. You were overwhelmed with a sense of joy for all God has done for you. And maybe it was a time when you were younger and life was quieter and, and you were just more grateful. Maybe you've never experienced a deep sense of thankfulness in your life. Well, the question I want us to think about is, how can we grow? How can we get that back? How can we live once more with a deep sense of thanks? And the answer is really in the title of this final point. It's by walking with the merciful Christ. But to explain what I mean by that, I think we first need to be clear about what true Christian gratitude is and is not. See, true Christian gratitude is not primarily about being thankful for God's gifts. You know, what marked the Samaritan leper was not simply that he was thankful for being healed. If it was simply thankfulness for the gifts, what happened to the other nine? It's good to be thankful for the many rich, varied, abundant blessings we have. But if the foundation of our thanks is the gifts we receive... We won't ever truly be thankful. As soon as our season changes and the gifts disappear, we'll be thankless. 
See, the Samaritan's healing opened his eyes to the heart of Jesus, the gracious Messiah who lavishes people with kindness. You see, true gratitude is relational. True gratitude is something deeper than just positive thinking, counting your blessings or having an attitude of gratitude. It's something far deeper. You know, if someone said to me, Brendan, what about Charlotte are you thankful for? And if I said, well, man, it's just she she gives me what I want every time. I mean, she gives amazing gifts and she cooks and she cleans whenever I ask. It's amazing. I mean, Christmas is amazing. I mean, she gives me so many good things. You would be right in saying, it sounds like, Brennan, you're just thankful for what she does and not who she is. See, true gratitude is relational. It's about love and thanksgiving for who God is. It's about seeing the infinite beauty and perfections of the one who made the universe and loves us as well. It's about seeing that God is perfectly displayed in Jesus, whose heart is full of mercy and grace. And this is absolutely transformative way of looking at life. To see that everything comes from his loving hand. You know, this is the truth we've been hammering over and over again, is that at the root of our lack of gratitude is wrong thinking about ourselves and God. You see, often our thinking about ourselves is far too high. We come before him feeling entitled. Even when our self-esteem is low, it only bothers us because we will, we wish we were considered more valuable than what others are saying. It's still an obsession with ourselves. Our thinking about ourselves is often far too high and our thinking about the Lord is often far too low. We struggle to believe he really is full of mercy and grace as Christ shows us. Put another way, we have lofty views about ourselves and hard thoughts about God. Well, how do we grow in the true kind of gratitude? Well, we need not look any further than our Samaritan, the leper. Read with me verse 15 through to 16, the first part of 16. It says this, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Well, I think there's three different things that we can take from this Samaritan's example that really describe for us ways in which we can grow. And the first way is simply this. It's by making the Lord Jesus your Lord and Savior. This is where true gratitude really begins. You know, in the Old Testament, the old part of the Bible, in Second Kings chapter 5, there's a man called Naaman the Assyrian uh, who was a general of the Assyrian army, and he was cured of leprosy by Elisha the prophet. Now, Elisha had an assistant called Gehazi who sought to take advantage of the situation by secretively seeking to take money from Naaman for himself. And as a result, Gehazi was afflicted with leprosy. He was covered with leprosy symbolic of his true inward condition now on his outward self. You see, the first step to becoming truly grateful is to recognize your spiritual leprosy 
and to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. See, all the ten men called out for help, but only the Samaritan came to the feet of Jesus, expressing his gratitude, expressing his trust, expressing his worship of him, becoming to him a disciple. And so if you're sitting here today, the first and most basic way we can grow in our gratitude is by putting your trust in the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But secondly, if you're here and already following Jesus, the ways in which we can additionally grow is by following his example and praising God with a loud voice and giving thanks. You know, so often our praises to God are not with a loud voice, but a whisper. Now, I'm not talking mainly about the volume. I'm talking about the quantity and the quality. You know, we often start times of prayer with a few brief words of thanks, but rarely for what he is like, that he holds all power and authority, that he knows everything and can be everywhere at once, that he is self-created, that he has no beginning and no end, that he never changes, and that he has made a way for us to know him through Jesus Christ. Here's, here's a way we can praise God with a loud voice. Do we ever even give thanks for the painful things? Not in any way am I trying to diminish the reality that there is general evil in this world and painful things are difficult. And this is not in any way to diminish the genuine suffering that many of us experience, but as an expression of trust in the goodness of God, even when his hand is unseen, to thank him for all that befalls us, both good and evil. You see, a prayer of thanksgiving to God for a trial, that is praising God with a loud voice, even though it may be a prayer muttered in the quiet of your heart. Making Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life, praising God with a loud voice and giving thanks. And finally, and most importantly, by simply walking with the merciful Christ. You know, in many ways, this is the best way to grow in gratitude. And it's so simple. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet. You know, more than anything else, A lack of gratitude reveals one thing about a person. That they're not walking closely with the Lord Jesus. When you see how gracious and kind he has been to you. When you see how gracious and kind he is in sustaining you. When you see how gracious and kind he has promised to be to you all the days of your life, there is no other appropriate response except extreme thankfulness and gratitude. And the best way to grow in this kind of gratitude is to frequently spend time with him in prayer, in reading of his word, in singing of his words, in gathering with and serving his people. Well, friends, as we close, I just want to share a little bit of a story uh, from my upbringing that I feel like brings uh, illustration to round out our time together. You know, when I was a teenager, my parents had a constant refrain. And it went like this. Now, how about a little thank you, Dad, and a thank you, Mum? 
And at the time, I found it so painful. I couldn't really understand why they kept on saying to me to say thank you. I mean, surely they know I am, right? And so often I would oblige, but quietly with rolled eyes. Now, of course, now as a parent, I understand a bit more about the importance of being thankful. And I'm constantly asking my boys now, ironically, funnily, to do exactly the same. The thing I've been thinking about this week is why did I struggle so much? Why did I find that so hard? And the thing that occurred to me this week was this. I was so used to being on the receiving end of their generosity and kindness that I simply took their gracious, generous, patient nature for granted. And I felt entitled to their many gifts. Would that never be the case with us and our Lord? A life of gratitude, friends, is the only right response to encountering the mercy of Christ. Would you pray with me as we close? Look, are we gather before the foot of the cross this morning as your people. And we just want to ask your forgiveness, Lord God, because so often our hearts are not filled with thanksgiving and praise. And yet, Lord God, how abundant in mercy you are that the potter would become clay to bleed for us that your heartbeat would be so full of grace that you would humble yourself to die on our behalf. Lord, even when we don't understand in the mystery of suffering and difficulty that's unexplained, one thing for sure we know, you are generous, you are kind, you are gracious and you are good. Lord God, help us to trust your heart Help us to see Christ on the cross and know, regardless of the season, that you are worthy of praise. Help us, Lord God, to ever grow as a grateful people. And praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and respond and pour out our gratitude uh, to God through this uh, through this next song. Please stand and join us.